0: energy and didn't have this hit the mark in the same way you know at the time um yeah it was interesting like during occupy i felt very protective of it because people were criticizing it without ever having visited and my retort to them was well if you don't like it come to the park come be part of it right if this isn't the protest of your dreams then come and participate and i also i think had read enough history at that point that I sort of felt like, well, the perfect movement never appears just like on a silver platter, right? A social movement's not a pizza that you order. Now, we had pizza delivered to Occupy, but, you know, this is, it's always going to be imperfect. It's always going to be fraught. You know, if you, if you look past the sort of simplistic narrative, you see that actually things were always really hard. (laughs) And yeah, and so, you know, at the same time, I was never really satisfied with this idea that, you know, Occupy changed the conversation. To me, I want to change so much more than the conversation. I want to change Mm -hmm. the political economy of our society. Uh, And so at a different point, I felt mixed about what Occupy's legacy was. But I think... Now that we're coming on the 10th anniversary, I think it's hard to deny that it was very powerful. That it opened this enormous space for people to talk about inequality, to talk about class, to talk about socialism. It also just revived the spirit of protest that we are seeing that has not withered, and it's totally shifted the political terrain that we're operating on now. Right. So you have. You know a lot of the same politicians in power but they are they are reading the you know they're reading the signs of the times and trying to tack left even if it's not as much as we want them to do and so that's where these questions of strategy of building political power building economic power of committing economic disobedience which is what we talk about in campaign won't pay are really you know critical um but but absolutely we're in a different world than we were 10 years ago and you can say things today and sound sane if <laughs> you said them in the spring of 2011, like saying I'm a socialist, right? I mean, it was like, it just felt like, well, what, what are the stakes? There's not really people enacting this politics. And now, now it's something that you know we, we know that the majority of young people are uh, on the same wavelength. So it's a different world.
1: That's kind of a great reminder that all of the well-covered story is the the um, conservatives turning into this crazy radical far right. Mm-hmm. That the other story is that most, you know, I, and I almost picture it being like the way continents form and break up and reform that like a chunk of the United States has drifted way to the right. But a, a whole lot of the rest of us have gone way to the left. And I feel like so much of what Biden is proposing that seems awesome is because the stage has been set the terms have shifted that you know we're a much more radical nation when it comes to talking about economic injustice um debt uh health care at uh, and uh, you know climate etc gender trans rights and biden standing up the other day and saying what he did about protecting trans kids is just something you can't conceive of a previous president saying which is not to give credit to biden but to see the historical forces that made it possible, which is tens of millions of people whose names will never be celebrated the way presidents are changing you know, the fabric of reality. And speaking of changing the fabric of reality, one of the great definitions in your book, and I'm going to read again, and you define the difference between activists and organizers, and I'm going to read a little. By contrast, Organizing is cooperative by definition. It aims to bring others into the fold, to build and exercise shared power. Organizing, as Jonathan Schmacher smartly defines it, involves turning, quote, a social block into a political force, unquote. Today, anyone can be an activist, even someone who operates alone, accountable to no one. For example, relentlessly trying to raise awareness about an important issue. Raising awareness can be extremely valuable, at least I hope so, since I've spent so much time trying to do it. But education is not organizing, which involves not just enlightening whoever happens to encounter your message, but also aggregating people around common interests so they can strategically wield their combined strength. Organizing is long-term and often tedious work that entails creating infrastructure and institutions, finding points of vulnerability, and convincing atomized individuals to recognize they are on the same team. to behave like it that's a tall order lady
0: (laughs) it's a tall order it's interesting i think i wrote that in maybe 2015 or 16 i mean this is the thing the political climate is changing but that's changing because people are engaging in different ways it feels like this idea that organizing is something really significant that it's uniting people into a block to engage strategically and whether that means, you know, wielding economic power, through, so through strikes, labor stoppages, or through debt strikes, through primary Democrats and trying to shift the political center, uh, organizing tenants, all of these things. Um, you know, people were doing them <laughs> 10 years ago, but there was more of a sense of activism, right? It was more that people were... In these kind of loose affinity groups are acting on their own. Uh, and there was a real um, hopelessness and despair about actually having to have a large scale transformative impact.
1: One of the things we're going to talk about next is conspiracies. But Astrid, you were in the middle of talking about activism versus organizing the rise of powerful organizing in the last decade. Strike debt, your own work and um, take it away.
0: Again, I think we're in a resurgence of organizing. I think people are re- rediscovering these this tradition, um, and also you see that in the way people are building membership organizations, right? So the rise of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, the fact that people are are forming and joining unions, like in, you know, for example, look at the media and all of these uh, magazines and news outlets, writers and editors are actually unionizing, and so you, I think what you see in that is an awareness that you know, it's not enough to just speak our minds individually, that we have to come together and actually build organizations that can sustain and build class power. And so that means that I think the dues paying element is actually really critical that if you, as a member of an organization, contribute funds to sustain that organization, it will be accountable to you as opposed to having it be dependent on, for example, philanthropic dollars (laughs) uh, or funded in a way that uh, creates a kind of disjunction there between its stated get, its stated goals and the way it's actually financed. So in uh, the debt collective, you know, is a union for debtors. We take inspiration from the labor movement, this idea that we have to figure out how to um, exercise economic power and uh, the idea that there's power in numbers. But it's something that for me, when I wanted to do this, I wanted to be involved in effective activism. I didn't know know, where to go, where to, how to learn and I've sort of learned, learned by doing with my comrades, a lot of whom I met at Occupy Wall Street and just by reading, by reading books published by places like Haymarket, trying to learn the history and learn about these traditions that are, you know, they're not at the forefront. We're not pushed into them the way we're pushed into other streams of life.
1: One of the really strong essays is about uh, the sort of gerontocracy that older people who have disproportionate financial and political power and the possibility of having more youth representation with lowering the voting age and things like that. But I also wanted wanted to segue from what you're just talking about, about reading books, about learning to organize. I think I could say organize again because there were earlier eras of incredible organization in the U.S. and the world. You have this wonderful thing in your piece uh, about the end of the universities. And just just a fact, in 1960, California celebrated Master Plan, committed to making secondary education available to every high school graduate at public expense. State policymakers saw higher education as crucial to Cold War economic development and national security. And then you talk about how Ronald Reagan saw that campus uprisings is something you wanted to squelch and the, the sort of transformation. Part of what was compelling for me about that is it feels like there's not a lot of intergenerational memory. When Bernie Sanders was talking about free college, it was always being framed as a, you know and of course god knows bernie remembers because you know he's been around but it was always framed as like here's this crazy idea that maybe they do in other countries and i was always trying to scream i'm from california the greatest public university in the world the uc system was free into into the 1960s and almost free into the 1970s and hella cheap when i went there in the 80s and um you know so i, I want to think about that and about Youth versus age. Another one of the great definitions you dig up is that the founding fathers no doubt knew that senex, a Latin root of the word senator, means old man. Yes, indeed. The the joys of intergenerationality, the the woes of gerontocracy, domination by people who aren't going to be around in 2075 or like our nieces and nephews, 2100. It's interesting. I mean,
0: the, the thing is that, so the piece on gerontocracy is about the way, as you said, that our political system, the American, the United States political system, disenfranchises young people who tend to be poorer, more diverse than the elder generation, right? I mean, this country, the demographics are changing, and also the class composition of the society is changing. So, you know, I'm very much for, I I think the last essay in the book, which is about climate change and time, you know, says what we need is intergenerational solidarity. And that doesn't just mean between the living, but future generations, uh, people who are not yet with us. But there's our, our system is very skewed and as I say the founders designed it that way the founding fathers and, and we highlight the forms of exclusion you know that are common to it we, we talk about race we talk about gender we even talk about the fact that people without property were excluded from uh, political rights the beginnings of this nation but yeah we rarely talk about how age factors into that and I think the and, and we see it in our uh, in our society now the reason that I highlighted this, fact that Senate means uh, that Senate <laughs> means, oh man, is that the average senator is in their 60s or 70s, but they're also a multimillionaire, right? They do not reflect the people that they're representing. Uh, and what this means is they don't have the same concern. So they're not as concerned about debt. They're not as concerned about climate change. Um, and you know as I said earlier in our discussion, younger people's politics are shifting leftward in a major way. And so we're not seeing that reflected in public policy. We're not seeing that reflected at scale. But intergenerational solidarity is so important in that historical memory. And I totally agree. This is something the debt collective is always saying too. We want all student debt eliminated and we want free college. And that is not radical. That happened a few generations ago. California is the prime example. And we would like, you know, parody with Joe Biden and with Chuck Schumer and with what Bernie Sanders experienced. So I I did the math recently and I found out that the student attending the same college as Joe Biden now pays four times as much in today's dollars. He also went to law school for something like fifteen hundred bucks, which is mind blowing. (laughs) But the problems with the past, it's not just that we want to return to the good old days because people of color were excluded from that. Right. So it was the public. Was basically white men, <laughs> and it's in the moment that the University of California system started to diversify. So in the 60s, this is what I write about in the piece. That's when the backlash started, right? And that's when you have Ronald Reagan reacting to protesters on the Berkeley campus, reacting to uh, the rise of the Black Power movement at, at Merritt College, which where the junior was a junior college, and he basically says, "Nope, you know, we're going to impose tuition and student debt so that you'll think twice about holding a placard." Right. And literally, he says that you won't protest once you have to pay for it. And he says the state shouldn't be in the business of subsidizing curiosity. That's Ronald Reagan in the 60s. Um, And we forget that, as you say, we forget that history at our peril, which is why it's so important to push back against the historical amnesia and why it is so important to be in movement with people who can put our demands in perspective. Right. Because, yeah. Saying we should have free education and debt cancellation is not radical. We need to push to a really radical transformative horizon.
1: Yeah, it cuts both ways. Also older people. I think I'm now one of them remember the bad old days. And I'm often told, oh, feminism hasn't achieved much or it failed or whatever. And I'm like, do you have any idea what the status of women in this country was Mm -hmm. when I was born? You know, when when marriage was essentially an ownership master-servant relationship and discrimination was well, so much more legal in so many ways. But but I wanted to cut back. The last essay is about climate. The first essay wonderfully weaves together so many different things that, you know, that form a whole. You start by thinking literally about breathing. You quote your sister, Sunara, uh, Sunara Taylor, about the fact that the pandemic has made us recognize that our breath can you know with a sneeze can extend thirty feet beyond ourselves that we are not solid objects we are these sort of diaphanous intersecting clouds and so you talk about breath which is literally inspiration and you know inspiring and expiring to go into your etymologies and then you talk about conspiracy can you know and of course there was also the summer of I can't breathe and George Floyd being deprived of his breath and stuff can can you can you reweave a little of that fabric for <laughs> yeah, us yeah, thank you
0: um i'm trying to think of what the genesis for that piece was but I, you know i was thinking about how breath connected so many of the um i don't i'm struggling to find the right word is it, it, that it it was set at the center of so much of the suffering of 2020 right in this really visceral way um and so of course with uh, COVID-19, the fact that it's a disease that attacks your lungs, so people were struggling to breathe, and we were having these very, you know, vivid, uh, terrifying conversations about what it was like to have to be intubated, to be put on a respirator, uh, so we're all valuing our lungs in this way, right, uh, and of course, there were raging wildfires, especially in California, but elsewhere, so millions of acres were burning, <laughs> then, of course, then, once again, we heard the refrain, I can't breathe, um, which wasn't new, but, um, you know, is this horrible um, fact that that Black Lives Matter and movements for racial justice have been trying to get everyone in this country to face, and, you know, it turns into this you know powerful chant. So I was thinking a lot about uh, breath, and, um, you know, I, in the essay, too, I, I was thinking about as these wildfires are raging too. the fact that when you know we see images of our lungs that they look like these upside down forests right i mean the sense that yeah we are we're connected to nature because we depend on these on trees to be able to breathe because they produce the oxygen we depend on that we're all interconnected i like the way you said it that we're diaphanous right that that actually sounds kind of uh, beautiful i mean my sister in her in the in the essay i quote from her she says we're like sponges you know i mean we're permeable and so you know, if this pandemic taught us anything, it's it's that we cannot be isolated. We are not islands, that if someone sneezes across the room, that it's eventually going to affect you, but also across the world. So, um, you know, I was thinking about that and also just thinking then about, uh, of course, all of the confusion and misinformation and all the conspiracy theories that we're traveling around about climate change, about COVID, about the wildfires, right? The fact that antifa had actually set them and they were not related to any natural phenomenon yeah and then i'm going back i really do love etymology and i i love it because uh i think words contain their histories right even if we're not conscious of it that those the the meanings and the layers of meanings do have a power i think even if it's even if it's something we're not aware of and so i love to excavate that where do words come from and i think also you know part of activism right is taking words and reclaiming them and transforming them you know words of abuse turns in turn into words of power and so i you know i think the way language helps us perceive and transform our world is just something that i guess as a writer i'm fascinated by and also as an organizer so conspiracy literally means it doesn't mean you know the wrong theory (laughs) it means breathing together conspiring breathing with others right and when I learned that, a kind of light bulb went off and I thought, you know, well, why there are all these toxic conspiracy theories, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, is because there's this vacuum that they're filling. And that vacuum is because there isn't an alternative framework. The left basically has been suppressed. And it turns out that actually the left has literally been suppressed by what are called conspiracy laws, to the conspiracy doctrine. And what did that mean? It basically went, the conspiracy was Workers trying to agitate for their rights, so it gets actually right to the Haymarket martyrs because that was what uh, led to their murder. Um, You know, I think three of them were able to get amnesty and escape that fate, but it was you know. So that's so fascinating to me that actually the conspiracies that the powerful were against in the beginning, in the colonial era, through the founding of this country, were the conspiracies were people organizing for higher wages, and I excavated this quote that i just have to read some uh fellow in the 19th century and he was a kind of social reformer and he said if the rich meet to reduce wages that's a conference if the poor resist the reduction it's a conspiracy (laughs) and the full force of the state came down on on people fighting the reduction of their wages and so now you have the obliteration of unions right you have insecurity, because people are paid nothing, and they don't have, they, they can't rely on the state to take care of them, illness or old age. And people are insecure, they're vulnerable, and those are the conditions where these awful conspiracy theories flourish. So it, to me, this etymology helped me kind of reframe or re-understand the world that we now find ourselves
1: in. There's two things really striking about that. One is that you're talking about the the, psych, the psychic social body, the, the collective mind becoming vulnerable to these kind of predatory theories, the way that the social body becomes vulnerable to viruses and there's a way QAnon and stuff, and QAnon is a kind of COVID-19 of the mind in a way. But also etymologies are being intergenerational about words. What where did this word come from? What did it use? What are its ancestors? What does it if you if you go back in its family tree, what does it connect to? So it's I, I love them too. Um, both going backwards to see what the origins of words are, what they tell us, the relationship between emergence and emergency and merging, for example. But, uh, you know, and then going forward, and, you know, feminism has progressed so much by coming up with new terms. Somebody had to coin workplace sexual harassment. Somebody had to come up with domestic violence. Wife-beating wasn't really going to work in the legal circles. You know, ga- gaslighting is a fascinating word that wasn't what mansplaining mansplaining yeah but there's been a plethora of new words in recent uh, years that have allowed us to think about things in new ways and also around racial oppression gender orientation and things like that and it's i'm fascinated how much changing the world requires changing the language but changing the language doesn't do the job for you but it can be a really crucial part of changing the world and so much of what these essays do that makes them so exciting is it says, here's what looks like an intractable problem because they've been describing it and you know they've domi- you know the people who benefit from it de- dominate the definition of it. If we subversively transform the definition, if we find new language, if we tell a different story, um, then other possibilities open up. Starting with the delegitimization of you know, uh, college debt or, uh, you know, a lot of other, uh, a lot of things like that. A sense of transformation and of radical politics and kind of cultural analysis proceeding together. It's one of the real beauties of this book. And uh, here's one of the definitions that was wonderful. At the end of your discussion of whether universities should cease to exist, and I have to read this sentence and I'll read the definition One of many ironies of contemporary higher education is the fact that millions of students are mortgaging their futures to pay for classes taught by people who may not make minimum wage. And then you conclude in this essay, only if we can do that, and that is make all these transformations you talk about, only if we can do that can the university live up to its name, embodying the Latin universitas, which means the whole or the world, a space for everyone where no subject is off limits. That's Rebecca Solnit and Astra
2: Taylor on Remake the World. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get copies of this program and for Astra Taylor's book, Remake the World. Our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call. 1-800-444-1977 one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven
0: seven. Another beautiful etymology in that essay is actually skole, right? Which is the Greek root of the word school, mm-hmm. which means actually it's about time. It means free time. So contemplation. It actually connotes a kind of leisure for the mind to flourish, to expand. That was something that I didn't expect to find hidden in that that word, but yeah, that essay, the end of the university, I wrote it last spring and into, it was published in the early summer. And it really is a space. You know, to go back to our conversation about the University of California system being free, it, it's actually me trying to think through. Well, what is behind the what is beyond the horizon just of making college free and eliminating student debt? Mm-hmm. Because we we also need to transform what the educational system is and so really thinking well what we want is an educational system that is not exclusive right not racially exclusive the way uh or way things were and remain to this day but one where you know it's not just free as in free tuition but also free as in liberating it is a place where curiosity is subsidized and so that essay talks about things like not just eliminating tuition but reviving the old demand for open admissions and saying, no, this is everyone can come in the door and get the resources they need. That means a lot more investment in every student. That means a lot more resources. That means not having an educational system where people are adjuncts and underpaid uh, in making minimum wage, as I say. So really trying to think beyond, yeah, think beyond the kind of nostalgia for the old, old days, you know, when tuition was affordable or free to the horizon, to like a something that's really worth organizing for. I think that's it too, right? Like something that's actually worth doing all the hard work that's going to be required to get there.
1: There's a lot of utopian sense of possibility in this, including that conversation you had, was it in St. Petersburg, um, with young people asking them what socialism is. And I don't know if this puts you on the spot, but can you recall some of your conversation with the young black person defining what a black socialism would be? I think essays are
0: a fun form. I know you love the essay. You've published about a hundred of them with a market. <laughs> but because you can incorporate these different elements, right? It's there can kind of be that journalistic encounter, you know, so I like to kind of quote people I've just met on the street, like these these folks I met at a cafe in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, and then this etymology and then theoretical analysis and weave it all together. So that's a piece about the resurgence of socialism, which you know to me really is one of the bright spots <laughs> of our time. And talking about what it means to people. And, um, and so I was in Florida showing my film, What is Democracy? And I went to this cafe, and I, I say this in the piece, but I overheard these, this group of young folks, maybe like or five of them and they were obviously engaging in some kind of community organizing and they had dream defender buttons on them uh you know and i'm uh they're actually people involved in dream defenders which is an amazing racial and economic justice and socialist group based in florida and uh, i filmed with people who are in miami so they're actually in what is democracy and so i just kind of walked up to them and and i was writing this piece on the resurgence of socialism and i was like so hi my name is astra can you tell me what you think about socialism? And I swear that they just were, their reaction to me was like, who are you? Why are you butting into our cafe conversation? And why do you want to know that? So they were a bit suspicious. Um, But after after a moment, you know, they said things that were just so astute and basically, you know, recognizing uh, a really key point that sociologists have made, and I think it can't be made enough, which is that white middle-class Americans benefit from all sorts of state services right so they have a kind of socialism but they are not forced to face it it comes in the form of mortgage interest deductions right or being right a lot of it is like in the tax code so you're able to write off depreciations of the things you've purchased and or another really shocking result of one survey was that a lot of people who are getting social security getting government benefits don't see themselves actually they they will say that i don't get any welfare i don't get any benefits because they imagine that they've paid they're they're almost like you see themselves as getting a service they've paid for right and uh whereas so these these benefits that really help uh the white middle class are invisibilized they're destigmatized, right whereas if you get food stamps right? It's highly, uh, you know, it's highly stigmatized. So that was one thing we talked about, which is this incredible double standard of who gets state support. Uh, And the sociologist Susan Mettler calls it the submerged state. I think part of our task, if we want to build a more equitable society, is bring out that submerged state, bring it into the open and say, okay, actually, there are all of these subsidies. There is all of this state support. You're not just affluent or secure on your own. Um, And then, yeah, they talked a lot about the need to put racial justice at the center, Right. And that there was a kind of leftist that, you know, there's kind of leftism that, that they felt didn't have enough attention to that. That was, you know, basically thought that it was all about economics, as though economics can be separated from race in the United States. It can't. So, you know, it was a I, that's one thing. But it was just that conversation. I love having the excuse to talk to strangers. I mean, it's harder during a pandemic, but I think that's always why I like to have an essay cooking so I can just reach across the void and ask people what they're thinking. <laughs>
1: Of course, the etymology of essay is French essay to try, which I've always loved. The sense that it's an it's an endeavor that might be experimental. It might fail in some sense, but but you know, to try is different than to assume you know to sort of color within lines and and reliably accomplish. So one. That's more also d- it's
0: different than an op-ed, right? Like to, an essay is yeah. trying and it's thinking instead of saying in 800 words, I will tell you my position and probably should have been a tweet.
1: You know, I always think of oh, there's somebody did a really funny cartoon on Twitter of like, you know, and looking at kind of New York Times conservatives, like the eight columns they write about. Let's listen to Trump voters again. Why, you know, why people, why this group should, doesn't really count and etc. But um yeah, an op-ed is usually kind of laying down the law, and I think an I and I think in a larger sense, in writing that there's writing that tries to open things up and that tries to close things down. There's a kind of definitive statement that assumes it should be followed by silence, versus. How I hope a lot of my work happens, which is that it's part of a conversation. I'm responding to what's already been said. It will cause more things to be said, which I hope that I'll listen to. Listening being another important word and essay topic and your thing. And stuff And that. It feels like two really different orientations. Those who just want to lay down the law and have the last word, Mm -hmm. hoping that nobody can even respond because it was so authoritative. Versus people who are like, I'm engaged in a conversation. One of the scary things now is that we're all learning and, you know, sometimes your opinion from last year doesn't totally make, you know, make it up to this year's standard. But that room, you know, so I worry about sometimes about that room for experimentation. But it is, you know, a process of discovery and learning. And one of the things I've been so fascinated by in the last several years is the way in which, you know, we're all in a seminar together to rethink gender sexuality race economics justice climate nature breath etc i was reading the stand-up comic commentator w kamau bell recently where he was talking about how he framed something five years ago and he's like but of course i wouldn't frame it that way now because i understand it so much better and i love seeing somebody publicly acknowledge as alicia garza often does that we're all on a we're all we're all learning and, uh, you know, and just what we know changes so, you know, changes so much. And I feel like for those who are, who were up for listening, you know, those of us who aren't trans got an incredible course in recognizing and um, trans issues and respecting trans rights and defending them. There's also a lot of backlash and stuff. So I'm fascinated by that process and as it opens things up. And an essay, I feel like, invites more conversation and response and response to what came before it's a kind of anti-authoritative writing
0: yeah i really i, I mean in that you're the master of this form
1: you know but i think it's no gods our, no masters no
0: matter exactly you're a, you're a practitioner a constant learner of this form i mean i think there's two things about it i mean one is i don't particularly like to be spoken to in a really dogmatic way, or like it. sort of this has all been figured out, it's been distilled to its 10 points and now get in line. I'm trying to, in the essays, always bring people along on the intellectual journey, right? The journey of discovery and you know, kind of showing them what's captured my curiosity, thinking that it might capture theirs as well and spark some thoughts that I'm not in control of. But to me it also relates to the ethos we have to have as organizers on the left i think we need to have discipline we need to have strategy we need to have a deep critique of capitalism right but i also think that doesn't mean again that we're just telling people these are your marching orders i mean i think we really have to cultivate a community of critical responsive engaged curious people right and that it's like to me Socialism is democratic. It involves everyone participating intellectually, as well as participating, you know, politically, right, showing up to the protest or in, or going on strike. And I guess I'm trying to model that politics and model that commitment, the way that I write and the way I talk to people as well. And I do think it's feminist. I mean, I, I make that explicit in the piece on listening. And that's a piece that you're quoted in of, you know, I think being receptive, kind of being in this dialogue, has been seen as weak and it's been seen as feminine, right? So we associate the speaker as the person with power, with authority. They tend to be masculine. And, you know, I'm trying to turn that on its head and say, no, actually, to be an intellectual is to be curious, which means you should listen a lot, right? It's actually to be confident enough to ask questions. So I definitely think there's a gendered dimension to this that I'm you know, explicit about in that one essay.
1: You can't be want to be the only voice in the room and yeah. also be a progressive socialist or anything else. But no. you, you know, if you believe in radical equality, you have to believe in listening and valuing other voices. And, uh, you know, which is one of the struggles in the motley collection of people that gets called the left.
0: If you think that, yeah, you're a political being because you voice your opinions all the time. We live in a world where, you know, you can can say anything on, online right i mean it's it's uh talk is cheap <laughs> it's actually monetized it's monetized by twitter and facebook but i mean if you want to actually build power and be a leftist then it's just not about your voice your opinions your righteousness it really is about becoming part of a collective project
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, And you gotta put yourself aside that goes back to the difference between activism and organizing activism is like you know at its worst is like i have the answer everyone listen and do what i tell and you one of the weird things i've seen all my life is you'll get some somebody usually a white guy piping up out of the blue where he's got the beautiful blue and everybody should do he's made it up himself he hasn't looked about whether it's redundant he hasn't seen whether people want to do it he's not thinking like an organizer where it's like what is it that people already desire that i can help facilitate what is the human nature we're dealing with? He's just kind of in love with his own awesomeness and kind of handing it down from on high. And of course, the only thing left about it is the left fieldness of it. You know, it comes out of left field and it's often just so disruptive. And, uh, you know, and the opposite is how do you engage with what, what the community actually needs? Maybe the ultimate story is Subcomandante Marcos who goes down to teach the indigenous people how to view Marxists, and they're, they're kind of like, you know, you're an idiot, and then he stays and learns, and instead of telling them what to do, learns what to do and becomes part of the Zapatista movement that revolutionizes how we're going to think about revolution itself and power and how change works. I wanted to read one more thing Towards the very end of the book, you engage in almost a de-definition rather than a definition. You say, what are rights anyway? We invoke them all the time, but they are not easy to define and rarely, if ever, absolute, as anyone who has spent time pinned up in a free speech pen at a protest knows too well. A right is not some strange substance that one either has or has not, stone points out in trees. One's life, one's right to vote, one's property can all be taken away. But those who would infringe on them must go through certain procedures to do so. Those procedures are a measure of what we value in society. So this definition yeah, yeah. of rights as almost comes back to the def, you know, to the human body as being made up of breath, which dissolves the boundaries, is the the kind of inter, interfusedness of, uh, of things, the interconnectedness. Yeah, that's an essay, an essay.
0: That's because... from. Who Speaks for the Trees, which is about movements to extend rights to nature. And that's building obviously on indigenous traditions uh, where rivers, mountains, sacred spaces actually are recognized as vital and, and not just as, as objects, a property. Um, but it's something, it's you know something that's happening around the United States. Lake Erie was recently granted rights, for example. And it's also I'm wrestling with really thinking through, well, why do I think of rights? Because we we say, we invoke them all the time and they are kind of empty and they can be very individualist. There are very compelling critiques of rights discourse, right? That they're just inadequate. They're inadequate protections. They're inadequate shields against inequality, against the state. And in that piece, I'm saying, again, they are tools that we have to use, but we have to think more expansively about it, right? Like what we need to think about rights as being collective, not just individual and not just being sort of defensive, but as being entitlements to economic security, to education, to health care, right? So these collective social rights. Um, but then, yeah, going into extending them to nature, extending them to animals, <laughs> which I think that's where I'm like, I think rights would be revolutionary in that context. Um, you know, if we think beyond the realm of, of the human. So it's, you know, that essay I is when I had a lot of fun writing. And I think I had, a you know, it's because it's this, for me, it's that the organizers who are pushing this this uh, at the municipal level for the rights of nature, for the rights, uh, and they're doing it in very they're doing it for very pragmatic reasons. They're typically trying to stop fracking in their community or to stop uh, injection wells, which are where all the toxic waste comes from, you know, as a re- that results from fracking. And they can literally stop these gas companies for years and years and years by saying, no, these ecosystems have rights. And for me, it's exactly, you know, it's one of these examples of this wonderful mix of the utopian and the practical. (laughs) And just thinking beyond the boundaries of the present and beyond the constraints of our political system, our limited conceptions of rights. uh, And while also just putting this wonderful sand in the gears of this ecologically extractive and destructive machinery we're in. So you know i think that those are the kinds of movements that i think personally make me the most excited that can open these horizons you know i think the debt collective does that in a in one way right imagine a world without debt jubilee for all <laughs> um, why do we have to pay pay these debts uh, and then but also then drilling down and going well actually how do we do this how do we concretely make people's lives better i also want results so that Duality, I guess, is a constant refrain in, in the pieces that I'm writing and things that I'm drawn towards.
3: Can we switch to
1: questions now? Yeah,
3: yeah I, I have a few questions uh, I can bring in. One uh, is a question, uh, Astra, if you could talk about a term you use in the book, which I believe you originated, uh, called photomation. If you could explain kind of where that came from and, <laughs> yeah. and what what work you're you're trying to think through with that term
0: that's cool yeah that's the one word i made up because i i loved when you were talking rebecca about the fact that we do have to create new language and new words unfortunately it's not a word that describes the world we want to live in (laughs) it's a a word that i came up with to describe an activity that is uh really troubling so photomation is basically faux f-a-u-x right and automation so fake automation. I've been very invested in writing about technology and thinking about the way digital tools have accelerated many of the negative aspects of capitalism. And so was keeping up with the uh, AI debates, you know, and all of the statements being made by economists and business executives, you know, the sort of robot revolution, robots are going to come and take your job kind of discourse. And uh, if you scratch below the surface, though, it's not true. (laughs) The robots haven't taken people's jobs. They aren't doing the work. And this was driven home for me. I was standing in line ordering lunch, and the guy in front of me said, uh, he said something like, how did the app know that my meal was going to be done 15 minutes early? And the worker at the cafe was like, I texted you. Like, he had thought, he basically thought this all-seeing robot had, like, made his lunch and sent him an update or something like that and what I just thought was like wow this what this technology is doing is it's just making human labor invisible it's not doing the labor it's just obscuring what's actually going on and there are so many examples of it once you see it that way it's just all over the place and you know it's it's purposeful it's a way of making workers feel vulnerable Uh, you know, this idea that the robot is always there. So now workers aren't just in competition with each other. (laughs) They're in competition with the machines who are coming for their jobs. And so I think, you know, instead of robots taking our jobs, we need to say, no, employers are making targeted investments in technologies that will make work less dignified, less well paid, and make workers more insecure. And so that's what this word photomation is trying to get at. And then I point to the tradition of socialist feminism into to Silvia Federici as a framework that can help us rethink our relationship to machines and the fact that, you know, we're not going to be obsolete. Don't let them make you think that you're disposable, right, that you can be replaced by technology. So much meaningful work for humans to do. Care work, <laughs> you know, green jobs, right, the green, the green revolution that we know we need. So yeah, don't let them make you think you're disposable by saying that a robot's doing what human beings are actually doing.
1: I think the pandemic brought that home in some ways, as we saw all the things that require human beings to show up and do their stuff from nursing to, you know, selling groceries, picking up the garbage, et cetera. And I'm hoping we come out of the pandemic with more appreciation for a lot of kinds of labor, school teachers and everybody else. uh, More questions?
3: Yeah, we have a question Can you talk about the legislation Ilhan Omar introduced that would cancel all student loans? Does this have any chance of passing through Congress? So
0: the Debt Collective has had a campaign that's been ongoing called the Biden Jubilee 100. So it was 100 debt strikers representing Biden's first 100 days in office. It was a kind of symbolic strike because actually millions of people are on strike. They're not paying their loans. In fact, nobody's paying their loans right now because there's this payment pause. Those 100 days are over. And this is an area uh, where the Biden administration is really falling short. I mean, he, they could have canceled all student debt on day one. Um, all, Unfortunately, all that has been done is extending Trump's moratorium on payments, Trump's pause on payments, which was really flawed because it left out millions of borrowers. It just was not well conceived. So extending a failed Trump policy is hardly something that we should be cheering, especially when he has the authority to do so much more. The Debt Collective's position is that this is something that actually should be handled using executive or administrative authority. The Debt Collective has helped discover and clarify the authority that was granted by Congress in 1965 to the executive branch. So this is something Congress already said, look, the executive and the secretary of education have the right to cancel all federal student loans, which makes intuitive sense because when you lend someone money, you have the right to cancel it. I mean, that just makes... Sense, uh, so we actually think that legislation just muddies the water, and so we've been pushing. And you know, we we actually uh, you know we have communicated this to any politician that will listen, including Omar's advisors, that legislation to cancel student debt is not the way to go in this moment. It's not going to pass. That's the thing. We don't need a messaging bill. We need the president to use the authority he possesses, and so we need the president to tell the education secretary. To cancel student debt and he's requested a memo supposedly there were two main concerns on this front one was the tax consequences because sometimes when you have canceled debt you'll have a tax burden in the first big reconciliation package one thing that was included in there was the fact that canceled student debt would have no ca- tax consequences so that's not a concern and biden has requested a memo from the department of ed on his ability to cancel student debt we know he has it because actually this authority that we're calling on him to use was used by Trump to cancel interest on student loans. So it better be positive because that, those are the facts. And you know, why would this authority magically disappear in the last few months? It would make no sense. But yeah, we're, we're not going for legislation with this. Legislation is required to fix a lot of things, including in the higher ed space, but not canceling student debt. And this is really gonna be an important fight in the year ahead.
1: Wow, thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca.
2: That was Astra Taylor and Rebecca Solnit on Remake the World. They spoke on May 4th. Rebecca Solnit is an award-winning writer, historian, and activist. Astra Taylor is a documentary filmmaker, award-winning writer, and political organizer. And she's the author of Remake the World. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado, We are independent and progressive, and in our 35th year, we're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Rebecca Solnit and Astra Taylor on Remake the World, And for Astra Taylor's book, Remake the World, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Haymarket Books. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. to the website alternative radio.org, org alternative radio.org. Uh, we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations uh, purchase transcripts mp3s or CDs of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there Road
4: here on the bus. now you it Magic,
1: oh. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Broadcasting here in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The people of the Treaty 7 region and Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.
5: Playing songs so catchy, you'll hear them in your dreams tonight. year of the dog that one is by less than three uh written like the little heart sign that we always like to write when we're online and the album is called thermodynamics now that one is by a cjsw alumni uh by the name of callum beckford All right, it is Wednesday, it's 1203, and that means it's time for another episode of Local Singles, broadcasting here off of 9, sorry, (laughs) at a CGSW 90.9 FM. Alrighty, so uh, before we get started with our show today, I do want to say that you're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station. I want to take this moment to acknowledge the traditional teri- territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta region number three so we've got a bit of a fun episode for you guys today uh over the course of this show's runtime from when we very first started we have been taking in music submissions from local artists through our social media and today i have compiled a whole bunch of those submissions along with some of the things and music that we have on our chart list So today is going to be an interesting episode. We have many, many different genres, and these are all artists who have submitted their music either to myself or to CJSW. And uh, a point I want to make with this particular episode theme is that CJSW does actually take music submissions from local artists. We usually have a deadline, which is at the end of every month, Um, but this month is a little bit special. We're doing something called a physical mail-out. So this is where we will take copies of your physical CDs, um, vinyls, cassettes, really whatever form that you have your music on, and we will compile it and send it out to other campus community stations across Canada. Now, not all campus and community radio stations take physical copies of music anymore, as they are moving more digital. However, that means your digital options are basically endless. Uh, If you submit your music digitally, it is definitely going to end up at a lot of uh, different kind of campus and community radio stations. So... If you are a local musician or just a musician that's, you know, listening into uh, CGSW 90.9 FM, I do want to encourage you guys to go and check out the website where you can find more information. Uh, if you look up the website, you go under music submissions. It's going to have all the contact information that you could possibly need and the instructions on how to submit your music to us. I think it's a really great opportunity for a lot of local musicians, especially newer musicians who aren't really sure where to put their music out to, you know, grow their exposure. So CJSW, we've got you. Uh, visit the website and get your submission in. Uh, this month's deadline will be on the 31st, as that is the last day of the month. All right, so we're going to move into our uh, set here. Before I get started, though, if you want to get a hold of me, you want to talk, communicate, whatever, really, uh, feel free to let me know. Um, That's 403-220-3991. I'm going to be here until 1 p.m. to answer all of your hot burning questions or if you just want to have a chat. Alrighty, let's get started with some music to uh, cheer up your day. This first track comes from a wonderful musician by the name of Crystal Robin who recently released um, their tracks on Bandcamp. And we're going to hear from them as well as Danny Randell later on in the set. Thanks so much for tuning in to Local Singles. My name is Sammy Parker, and we are going to get started with the music here. All right, my friends. Here is Tell Your Friends You Love Them by Crystal Robin. If you like what you hear, make sure you keep that dial locked to cgsw 90.9 FM.
4: As leaves fall in and you're still This is a